From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. House Democrats look to the 2020 presidential election as they unveil sweeping climate change legislation. The goal is net zero carbon emissions by 2050. We are not going to let a climate denier sitting in the White House be a factor for us to slow down because there is no time that we can't waste with this crisis. We have used this time to build a package. And when there is acceptance in the executive branch, we'll be able to roll forward. Also, as the planet heats up, the wine-producing regions of the world are beginning to shift. Roughly speaking, cooler regions growing wine grapes now are the winners. Hotter regions are the losers. But it really depends on what places choose to do. So France, for example, where many of the most famous varieties come from, sees balanced losses and gains. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom, in for Steve Kerwood. The House Energy and Commerce Committee recently unveiled the Clean Future Act, a plan to tackle climate change. It translates many of the ideas laid out by the Green New Deal into specific policies. The overarching goal is for the United States economy to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Highlights include a national climate bank that would channel public and private funds for green investments, especially in communities disproportionately impacted by climate change and pollution. Also, a Buy Clean initiative would encourage more sustainability in federal work projects. Congressman Paul Tonko is a Democrat representing New York's 20th District. He chairs the Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change within Energy and Commerce and has worked closely on the draft legislation. Congressman Tonko, welcome to Living on Earth. It's my pleasure to join you. Now, I understand the Clean Future Act is still being worked on, um, but it's already over 600 pages. And we'll unpack a few of the specifics, but broadly, uh, what does this bill intend to cover? Well, it basically is a, a very strong response to the climate crisis. This is a bold, innovative draft to uh, put Congress in the uh, position to advance comprehensive climate action at the earliest opportunity. Well, let's talk about a few of the specifics here. Our largest source of emissions as a country, close to 30 percent, comes from the transportation sector. Right. How do you intend to bring that number down? Well, certainly electrification within the transportation sector is important. So this bill is all about targeting pollution. And with that, we create a national climate bank that will enable individuals to uh, receive the efforts of public and private financing that will enable us to transition to a clean economy, including electrification of that transportation sector and making certain that we move to clean transportation. Well, if you want to electrify the the transportation sector and our electricity comes from coal, that doesn't do much good um, in terms of emissions. Can you tell me what your plan is to to make our electricity generation more uh, more green? Sure. In the energy generation sector, if we're going to electrify the transportation sector, of course, we want that to grow cleaner. So every effort is made to put competition in play with the uh, pollution that comes. And so the standards that we develop, the opportunities we offer for a competitive federalism, so to speak, enables these energy generating players to buy into the concepts of uh, responding to the 2050 goals. So that will develop, I believe, more reliance on renewables, more reliance on energy efficiency and on innovation. I think uh, we will see the, the market shift accordingly. We have state climate plan initiatives that are part of our package so that it fosters cooperative partnerships between the federal government and the states or compact of states to ensure that each state or region will achieve those national climate targets. It will direct the EPA to develop a menu of policies which states can implement. And it also includes a federal backstop to ensure that our emission reductions in the states is going to be targeted in a way that they will have to respond with a, an approvable plan if they're missing those targets. Now, it seems that whenever this idea of reining in emissions comes up, there's always a, a knee-jerk reaction from some to say, oh, no, we can't do that. It's going to destroy our economy. How do you respond to that sentiment? And what provisions do you have here to soften the blow for businesses and, and industries that might be impacted? Right. There will be 
targeted assistance that we can provide with our policies. I would also argue that there will be many, many jobs created not yet on the radar screen that will enable the economy to grow. And uh, certainly the investment in technology and innovation in research is important. I believe that there is a global effort going on as we speak that is compelling for us to be involved. And basically, overall, the mantra here is like the cost of inaction overwhelms, I believe, the cost of taking action here. Now, Congress has tried and failed before to address climate change, most notably with the Waxman-Markey bill in uh, 2009 that passed the House only to die before it ever even reached the Senate floor. What makes this bill different? Well, I think a lot has changed in 10 years. The Waxman-Markey bill was a major effort that, as you'll cite, was approved by the House. But, you know, the cost of renewables has dropped significantly, well beyond what they had forecasted. The economy is much stronger. You know, we were at the uh, in the shadows of a recession, and the Obama administration led that march upward. And so I think now we have a, a better economy. The general public has bought, has accepted this concept. It's no longer simply about polar bears that matter, but it's a backyard issue. You know, flooding in Nebraska, record rises of the Mississippi, wildfires in the Southwest, people watching the news and seeing international flooding like never before. They have now come to understand that there is something to this climate concept and the climate crisis is real. So we believe that there is a great opportunity here to get favorable response to solving the climate crisis. And yet, you know, sitting in the White House, we have a, a president who has called climate change a hoax. Um, right. How likely is it that he would sign off on this kind of legislation? Or are you maybe hoping to, to run out the clock and next year have a president who's more willing to work on this issue? We are not going to let a climate denier that calls climate crisis a hoax sitting in the White House be a factor for us to slow down. In fact, we have used this time while the denier is in the office to build a package and now have people respond to that package. So we're not wasting any time because there is no time that we can waste with this crisis. And when there is acceptance in the executive branch, we'll be able to roll forward. And what kind of reception are you receiving from your Republican colleagues? Well, you know, people are looking at the bill. It's new, it's thick and bulky and and voluminous. But what we have here is a proposal that even includes a number of Republican proposals that are in our package, including efforts for energy efficiency, funding for carbon capture, and the like. So we're just anxiously working with individuals out there and aggressively moving forward and asking people for their input. Many hearings have been held to get us to this point, and I'm certain many hearings will be held to fine-tune our package. Congressman Paul Tonko represents New York's 20th District and is chair of the Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change. Thank you so much, Congressman Tonko, for taking this time with me. It has been my pleasure, and I appreciate the interest you have shown. It's time for a trip now beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter is an editor with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org, and dailyclimate.org. Hey there, Peter. Uh, Did you happen to catch the State of the Union this week? I did, Bobby. I never miss it because uh, I want to hear the the six or seven words spoken about the environment, and Donald Trump didn't disappoint. What did he have to say? Well, his only line strictly about the environment came midway through the speech. Before that, he did brag on energy independence, mentioning only oil and gas, and not that energy independence might possibly include the rapid growth of wind and solar. Then about halfway in, Donald Trump very briefly decided he would speak for the trees. Okay, a Lorax moment. Let's hear it. To protect the environment, days ago, I announced that the United States will join the One Trillion Trees Initiative, an ambitious effort to bring together government and private sector to plant new trees in America and all around the world. Um, a trillion trees. Wow, that sounds ambitious. But how realistic is that goal? Oh, it's, it's not. It would certainly help to plant a trillion trees. Um, it's not only uh, not realistic, though, if you do the math. 
but it would be a danger in the sense that it would make us think we're solving the climate problem when it's only a partial solution at best. In order to cancel out U.S. carbon emissions, you would have to cover land twice the size of Texas with trees in order to do this. Okay, well, that's going to be a tall order, to say the least. Hey, by the way, who was the uh, designated survivor this time around? Uh, This time, it was Interior Secretary and former oil lobbyist David Bernhardt. You can draw some uh, possible conclusions about the fact that if there's so little about the environment in the speech, the Secretary of Interior can stay home, get a bowl of popcorn, and watch it on TV. The designated survivor, of course, is the one cabinet member that's left behind that doesn't attend the speech in case there's some kind of disaster. That person would become president in the line of succession, meaning we would have a guy who was an oil lobbyist a year and a half ago become president of the United States. It's actually the sixth time an interior secretary has been the designated survivor that's tied for first place along with the Secretary of Agriculture. All right, Peter. Well, what else do you have for us this week? We're going to go straight to the book of Exodus, specifically the plagues that God directed Moses to visit upon the Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, And number eight was the plague of locusts. Right now, there is a plague of locusts afflicting the Horn of Africa. It's something that was called, quote, an unprecedented threat to food security and livelihoods throughout the region. Oh, man. And and I'm sure that's in an area that could hardly um, stand to have another challenge thrown at them, much less a plague of locusts. No, they don't really need any biblical metaphors like that. No, indeed. Well, what do you have from the History Vaults this week? Uh, Shout out to some good friends of ours. The Society of Environmental Journalists has its 30th birthday on Valentine's Day back in February 14th, 1990. They were inspired by um, a diss from the famous ABC News reporter Sam Donaldson, who uh, talked disparagingly about, quote, the ecology beat. Some reporters got together, including Pulitzer Prize winners, founded the Society of Environmental Journalists. Now, 30 years later, into the we're going into the third decade of the 21st century. SEJ has 1,300 members, and it is a wonderful resource for people who write and report uh, on environmental journalism. And Bobby, can you name any other entity, a nonprofit dedicated to environmental journalism that's been around for anywhere close to 30 years? Well, I think I know where you're going with this. I I can, in fact. Uh, Living on Earth has been around for nearly 30 years now. Uh, It's been around forever. Both Steve and I are near charter members of SEJ, and Steve, of course, is the charter member of LOE. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for reminding us of those great milestones. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks again, Peter. We'll talk to you real soon. Okay, Bobby. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on our website, loe.org. Coming up, rain helps put out wildfires, but it can lead to disaster for nearby waterways. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I am Bobby Bascom. During a wildfire like those still raging in parts of Australia, firefighters pray for rain to help them battle the blaze. And though rain brings relief, it can also lead to a whole new set of problems for local waterways. For more, I'm joined now by Nusha Ajami. She's a hydrologist at Stanford University and sits on California's Regional Water Quality Board. Nusha, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. So generally speaking, how does wildfire affect water in nearby rivers and streams and even lakes? So basically, wildfires change the landscape significantly, and they actually can create a diluge that eventually with the rain and the storm can end up in the water systems. Now, if the wildfire has an interface with urban areas, that 
becomes a lot more intense and it would include more toxic materials from the burning of the chemicals, electronics, appliances, and a lot of other daily fixtures in our household. Also smoke can eventually travel and go to different places and transport some of these chemicals through atmospheric processes. So some of these impacts can go beyond the region that has been experiencing fire. And you talked a bit about urban areas and the things that could wash off into rivers there. But what about, you know, in a more wild area? Yeah, so those are more natural material that get burned, right? Trees, bushes, and it doesn't necessarily create chemical pollution in our water systems. However, it still can impact the waters by creating a smoke smell in the water or actually sediment that needs to be cleaned up. So it's slightly different, but they both can impact the water quality. And what about the use of chemicals to put out fires? Those must also make their way into the water. So yes, those fire retardants include some chemicals that are used to sort of suck oxygen out of fire and make sure it turns off, right? So it doesn't grow more, but those chemicals actually, if it's washed up, it ends up in some of the water bodies in the close proximity to the fire area and can have a lot of impacts. Mm -hmm. Now, I've read that some of the streams in Australia actually began to boil, if you can imagine that, during the fires there. That's, of course, a really extreme case. But generally speaking, how are the wildlife in these areas impacted both during and after the fire? They actually can be significantly impacted. We have to remember they are the first receiver of some of these chemicals and contaminants and material and pollutants. And because of their body size, they are much more vulnerable to some of these chemicals and they can be significantly impacted. And also remember, water quality degradation is not just for the chemicals. Also, heat can be a water quality problem. And the freshwater ecosystem or marine ecosystem are very sensitive and vulnerable to some of these extreme changes in the temperature. Sometimes various regions have experienced big loss of these species due to some of these wildfires. Now, what kind of impacts can wildfire have on drinking water in an area? Depends on what kind of wildfire you're talking about. If the wildfires are happening in the rural area or in the forest area, or an area that's not necessarily interfacing with human urban areas, they can impact the amount of sediment in the water or the smell of the water. When we are talking about the urban areas, sort of being part of these fires, and if you have this whole urban wildland interface being burned, then we can have some metals or other chemicals that we use in our daily lives ending up in the water that needs to be cleaned up and handled or managed differently. After a wildfire that burns hundreds or thousands of acres, how in the world can you clean that up? So, for example, when we had the fire in Northern California a couple of years ago, the Army Corps of Engineers, in collaboration with the Regional Water Board and a few other entities, set up a coordinated effort and they all went and cleaned up some of the sediment and sort of sandbagged some of the burnt areas. And that was very helpful to make sure some of these material doesn't end up in the water systems. And one other thing I have to actually mention is these fires can also increase the possibility of erosion, especially when it's in the wildland. We experienced that in California in the Santa Barbara area because there was some fire that burned some of the wildland and the urban areas. And then afterwards, we had an intense raining season, which caused some landslides due to the loss of species that help to keep these soils together. So that can also be one of the side effects of these fires. Now, you, of course, are an expert on uh, California and the waterways there, but the world is looking to Australia right now as they battle with intense fires there. What are your thoughts on the Australia fire and how does it compare to what you've dealt with in California? It is truly devastating and really worrisome, to be honest with you. I wonder if that's where we are looking at in a few uh, years, because right now there have been chain of uh, fires happening there. A lot of people have been impacted. A lot of wildlife have been impacted and it's truly devastating. So far in California, our fire season has definitely 
been extended and has become longer and we have fires different times of the year now. And every year we just hope that, you know, we can manage to make it through it. But with Australia right now, their fire season haven't even started and the country is burning like this. So God knows what's ahead of them. It's scary to think of. I mean, the thing is, this problem with wildfires, it's not going to go away. As you mentioned, it's likely only to get worse. What do you think can really be done to mitigate the potential impacts on, you know, specifically water that we're talking about here? One point I will make, we have to definitely reconsider how we are treating the water, how we are handling post-fire management. Actually, some of the most important work that we can do is should be done pre-fire. So we are trying to manage land in a way that we can either reduce the intensity of some of these fires or prevent them from happening by doing forest management, wildland management to make sure that we can reduce the intensity of these fires or actually prevent them from happening. One might think, okay, the comments that I just made us has nothing to do with water, but the reality is if we can't prevent these fires to happen, it can eventually impact our water bodies. That means that some of the water agencies and water utilities and different layers of local government and state government and federal government that are dealing with water and its accessibility should be considering to invest in the efforts to prevent or reduce intensity of some of these fires. Mm -hmm. I would say that's the cheapest and easiest way to get involved. Then we have to also consider how we need to change our treatment process or work with some of these groups that are on the ground to help us to clean up after the fire as fast as we can, deal with some of the post-fire sediments in a strategic way that wouldn't impact our water bodies. Nusha Ajami is Director of Water Policy at Stanford's Wood Institute, and she sits on the California Regional Water Quality Board. Nusha, thank you so much for taking this time with me. Thank you for having me. Fires in Australia have so far burned an area nearly the size of West Virginia. The bushfires have burned through dry habitats home to many of Australia's most iconic species, like koala, kangaroos, and wallabies. They've even burned the more humid eucalyptus forests, home to the lyrebird, the leadbeater possum, and the great glider, an animal so adorable it's been nicknamed a flying teddy bear. Some of these humid forests aren't naturally equipped to deal with frequent fires and are struggling to grow back on their own. But humans are helping to give them a shot at recovery. Owen Bassett is director of Forest Solutions, which is helping the government reseed forests in Victoria and New South Wales. He joins me from Melbourne, Victoria. Owen, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So please describe the forests where you work. What do they look like and, and what does it feel like to be there? Yeah, the forests that I work in are tall mountain forests. They're known as ash forests. I suppose in terms of stature, they're similar to your California redwoods. Mm. So they're very tall, very large trees and sort of a wet forest. So you might think that a lot of Australia is covered in dry forest. Um, most of it is, of course, and most of it is arid. But along this southeast corner, we have beautiful wet forests that run up the Great Dividing Range and they are gorgeous to uh, to be in. Um, they're cool, they're damp, full of great native wildlife. Yeah, just beautiful to be in and visit, yeah. Wow, it sounds, sounds amazing. Um, what kinds of animals live in the forest there? So, yeah, we have um, all of those marsupials that you American people know about, the jumping ones and uh, the kangaroos. Uh, we have a species or a number of species of wallaby that live in those forests, and we also have arboreals, so... These are mammals that live up in the canopy of the forest. And then we have this magnificent songster. I don't know if you've heard of the superb lyrebird. It has the capacity to mimic a whole range of birds and sounds that it hears in the forest. And it's an absolute joy to, to listen to them. So these forests are sort of like a cathedral to be in. And oh. so sounds like, like the lyrebird, just, they just resonate. I think we actually have some recordings of the lyrebird we, we can play here. Let's have a listen. 
they do have the ability to um, imitate the shutter sound of cameras. They can imitate the sounds of chainsaws. Of dogs barking. All sorts of things like that. But the main repertoire is, is the full suite of other birds that are, and animal sounds that are in the forest. They're quite talented, if you like. <laughs> so you mentioned that this is a, a very wet forest. Why is it burning now and, and how common is that? Yeah, look, it's unfortunately very common at the moment, but it's not common in terms of the forest's, I suppose, geological history, if you like. All eucalypts have evolved with fire. So fire is part of the environment here in Australia, a little bit like your California. But the thing is that, you know, we do have a changing climate here at the moment, a drying climate, and we're currently caught in this real cycle of droughts, okay? So in southeast Australia, we had this mammoth drought. We refer to it as the millennial drought. It went for 12 years, from 1997 to 2009, so what that left was this huge legacy of soil moisture deficit. And then we've had a sequence of small droughts since that time, and we're currently in one at the moment. And the problem with the millennial drought and the legacy it's left is that every other small drought that comes along has this sort of disproportionate impact. And this year we've, we have never measured drought index so high. That is why these forests are burning and... and in the last 20 years, these forests have burnt on average every four years. And because those fires are so, or that interval is so short, the species just can't catch up. The species needs at least 20 years to be able to then reproduce because young trees don't flower. And so these four-year intervals are just too quick. And where you get these fires overlapping, then the species is in big trouble. And we're experiencing that now in Australia is forests that are at the stage of population collapse. Uh, classically, it occurs in species like alpine ash and mountain ash that, you know, require much longer periods of, of fire intervals to survive. So it sounds like if there was no intervention, these forests would likely turn into some different type of ecosystem altogether, maybe savanna or grassland or something like that. But yeah. you and your group, you're intervening. And, and can you talk about that? What, what are you guys doing exactly? Yeah, look, so because these species are obligate seeders, if we have enough seed and we have the means to spread that seed where the forest is going to experience population collapse, then we can intervene lay seed on the ground or sow seed on the ground, and these forests will return. But it's easier said than done. So we have to collect the seed, we have to distribute the seed, and uh, that's a mammoth operation, yeah. Mm. How does that work? How do you collect them? So for the last 26 years, I've been monitoring the flowering of these species. So mountain ash, for example, is the tallest flowering plant in the world. Mm. And every year I go up in a light aircraft and I actually map the distribution of the flowering. So once it's flowered and we know where it is in the landscape, one year later we can expect that there'll be seed there. And so mm -hmm. at that point we send climb teams in and they climb these tall 80-metre trees and they delimb just a... We keep the tree alive. We just delimb maybe a third of the branches that are on that tree and we keep the tree healthy. We keep the growing tip in place. And so we take a, just a section of that crown out, and from that we can pick the seed pods, if you like. They're sent away and, and the seed's extracted from that fruit or those pods. The seed looks a little bit like coarse pepper, so tiny seeds. Um, mm -hmm. The seeds are not, not big, and it's extraordinary to think that such a tall tree, something akin to your Californian redwoods, comes from this tiny, tiny piece of cracked pepper-sized seed, yeah. Nature is amazing that way, huh? And so how many pounds of seed or maybe kilos of seed are you getting? And then, and then how do you distribute them? Yeah, so we need about a kilogram of seed for every hectare. That's about a pound per acre. We distribute these using helicopters. And so the seed is put in a hopper inside the helicopter and the seed is spun out the bottom of the helicopter. And so you get this picture like... As the helicopter's going long, the swathe of seed is only 20 metres wide, 60 feet. So it's not very wide at all. And so you get this picture 
in this huge expanse of burnt landscape, you get this picture of the helicopter having to go up and back, up and back, up and back many, many times Mm -hmm. um, to cover that huge amount of area because I'm actually expecting up to 10,000 hectares so that's like 25,000 acres or something. So it's a, it's a massive operation. And so how long have you been doing this type of regeneration with helicopters, you know, distributing the seed in this way? Yeah, since we started that, I mentioned earlier that we've had fires on average frequency every four years. So since 2003, we've been having to, to sow, aerially sow seed across large areas to recover forests that are in danger of imminent population collapse. Just last year, we had to do this operation. From all those earlier fires, we have all this young regrowth. So that's burnt again. All that young regrowth is burnt again. So we're even asking the question, you know, you know, should we keep sowing seed? You know, what, what's because we're, we're re-sowing sites now that burnt like four or five years ago. And we've always struggled with having enough seed. And this year... That's probably our major challenge is uh, insufficient uh, seed to sow this huge area that we're expecting to have to sow. Yeah, I understand that you also have a, a seed bank that you're working on. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so the, the concept of a seed bank is one that, you know, you put some seed away for a rainy day. We needed uh, 10 tonnes of seed this year. At the moment, we might have a third, maybe to a half of that. Wow. Now, I've been advocating for a seed bank for about 10 years and the state government has only ever funded small seed collection operations that were emergency in nature, if you like. Okay, we've got a bushfire, we'd better go and get some seed. Mm, it's got to be very frustrating for you. Yeah, it's very frustrating. And um, But look, at this stage, we battle on. The question we really do, it sounds a bit corny, but do we want these forests for our grandchildren? And yes, I do. Yes, we do. That's the, the cry from Australia is that uh, we want to save these forests. We want these tall forests. We want our grandchildren to be able to walk under them. That's what drives us. That's the passion, if you like, hmm. uh, to get these forests regenerated. Yeah. Owen Bassett is the founder and director of Forest Solutions in Melbourne, Australia. Owen, thank you so much for all of your hard work and for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Coming up, unlucky in love this Valentine's Day? Try feeding your ex to a bear. Well, kind of. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. This week's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. BetterHelp connects you with a professional, licensed, and experienced therapist in a safe and private online setting. They have thousands of U.S. licensed therapists who specialize in everything from depression and anxiety to grief and trauma. These counselors are trained in a variety of topics, including LGBTQ issues and relationship or family conflicts. You can communicate with your BetterHelp therapist in whatever way works best for you, whether that's texting, chatting live, or having a phone or video call. Everything that you share is completely confidential, and you can request a new counselor at any time, free of charge. Hundreds of thousands of people have used BetterHelp to get the counseling that they need at a truly affordable cost. And Living on Earth listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code EARTH. To try it today, go to betterhelp.com earth. Just fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. Well, Punxsutawney Phil did not see his shadow this year, which foretells an early spring. But before the season slips away, Living on Earth commentator Cy Montgomery suggests we should stop and take a moment to appreciate the sights and sounds of winter. At no other time of the year are sounds so sharp. The scolding winter call of the chickadee, wind howling through oaks or whispering through pines, the clarion call of wind chimes, piercing as the cold itself. Hearing may be the richest sense. Helen Keller wrote she felt its absence a handicap far worse than blindness. As if to make up for winter's void, of colors muted, touch numbed, and sense sealed, winter's sounds are the most vibrant. 
sound travels further over frozen ground. Frozen surfaces are rock hard, so they don't absorb sound, they reflect it. And when the atmosphere above is warmer than the ground, sound bounces back toward the ground. Winter's freeze is like having a sound reflector in the sky. Winter's bareness amplifies and clarifies its voices. Spring and summer are crowded with ambient noise. The sounds of birds and insects, the rustle of animals in the woods, the whisper of grasses and leaves, not to mention the hubbub of so many people in their machines. In summer, leaves absorb sound, especially the higher frequencies. But now, the trees are bare. Summertime's murmurs are hushed. And snow is covered with a hard ice crust. Sound slices through the air. Stark, clear, pure. So this is the best time of year, I think, to go somewhere secluded just to listen. Listen for the voice of the wind. The ancients said that Boreas, the north wind, loved a nymph who was changed into a pine tree. Boreas still rages and howls through oaks and maples and beech, but his voice is quite different when he speaks to his love. Listen to the voices of the trees. They creak like rusty hinges as they sway in the wind. Sometimes trees will even pop loudly. It can sound like fireworks, their wood expanding and contracting during sudden changes in temperature. Listen to the voice of the ice. On a lake, sometimes, you can hear the ice squeak or crack or even boom. Even safe, solid ice will make a cracking sound as it expands, scary to an ice skater. But if you're walking in the woods, the booming of a lake is like music. And remember, in winter, that one of the greatest rewards of listening can be silence. Orchestras know this. At the end of a performance of Mozart's Fantasy in C minor, a thousand ears strain for the last note. Silences are different in winter, too. This is not the soft, glowing stillness of pre-spring or the absorbing quiet of swimming underwater. No, winter's silence, like its sounds, is piercing, clear and cleansing, like a shooting star, well worth seeking and savoring. Cy Montgomery is the author of more than a dozen books, including How to Be a Good Creature, Tamed and Untamed, Soul of an Octopus, and The Good Good Pig. For links to her work and our conversations with her, go to the Living on Earth website, loe.org. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and for some that might mean a cozy table for two at a nice restaurant and a favorite bottle of wine. Whether it's a dry Cabernet or a fruity Pinot Noir, people can be very passionate about their wine. The 2004 film Sideways was about a man named Miles with very strong opinions on wine. Here, a friend is talking to Miles about how to behave as they head in on a double date. If they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. No, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any Merlot! Okay, okay, (laughs) relax, Miles. Jesus, no Merlot. Well, according to a recent study, the Miles of the world will have to be a bit more flexible about their wine preference in the future. That's because climate change is already wreaking havoc on what grapes can be grown and where. And the trend is only expected to get worse with time. In fact, a recent study found that roughly 85% of current wine-producing areas will be lost, no longer able to grow grapes, if the world average temperature rises by 7 degrees Fahrenheit, a scenario scientists believe is possible if we don't adequately address the climate crisis. For more, I'm joined now by Elizabeth Wolkovich. She's a professor of forest and conservation sciences at the University of British Columbia and lead author of the recent study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Elizabeth Wolkovich, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. In terms of the wine regions of the world, who are the biggest losers and winners when it comes to climate change? Certainly what we see at a broad scale is that regions that are hot now, places like Italy, Spain, much of Australia, where they currently grow wine grapes right now, 
are already on the edge of which varieties they can choose. So they have a limited amount of diversity to consider planting in the future. And that means that in our projections, which do look at just a slice of the diversity, we see those regions seeing major losses without significant gains. So upwards of 80 percent or more of the current growing regions in those areas could be lost with warming. On the flip side, places that are cooler, like the United Kingdom, Tasmania, New Zealand, the Pacific Northwest of the United States, those regions gain lots of opportunities to grow different wine grapes or more varieties of wine grapes. So roughly speaking, cooler regions growing wine grapes now are the winners, hotter regions are the losers, but it really depends on what places choose to do. So France, for example, where many of the most famous varieties come from, sees balanced losses and gains. So we see that they will lose potentially 25% of their regions due to certain varieties that they grow now becoming less suitable, but they can grow later ripening varieties at about the same rate. So you wouldn't really predict major regions in France to go away based on these results. Is there anything they can do besides just growing different varieties of grapes? I mean, is there any other, you know, agricultural practices that would be useful, anything like that? Yes, as with all agriculture, there are lots of different ways to modify a crop to try to deal with warming. So for wine grapes in particular, growers have been feeling climate change for decades now. Many of them already have options that they use every year for the most part to deal with the warming. Across California, most growers at this point use something called shade cloths that basically just take some of the sunlight off the berries to try to reduce the local climate right next to the the cluster, for example. Mm Growers in California have also switched to micro-misters if they can afford it. So if you think of when you go to the grocery store and you see those micro-misters coming down on produce, people actually install those outside and it has a dramatic effect on the climate right around the plant. So that can reduce temperatures. Growers can do other dramatic things like change rootstock. So wine grapes are different on the bottom than on the top. And they have options for trying to change within their vineyard where they grow things. So if they have a a slope that's a bit cooler, they might start planting more there. So there's lots of options out there. And it sounds like those adaptations, I mean, they could be kind of expensive, you know, misters and all of these things to introduce. I mean, that's not free. And then at the same time, they're probably taking a hit to their bottom line uh, just in terms of their productivity in in the meantime. How do you expect, you know, the economics around growing wine to change in the future? Yeah, the economics of growing crops in general, and especially wine grapes, is a billion dollar or more question right now. Certainly, it's really expensive to change a variety. It's not an easy solution. It's not a cheap solution, and it has knock-on effects. Once you've even changed the variety, you have to figure out how to harvest it, figure out how to make great wine out of it. None of the solutions are cheap. So places that are large, that have a lot of money, have already started buying land in other places. Tattinger is a famous maker of Champagne from Champagne, France. And they now own a sizable area of the United Kingdom that they believe will be ideal for making Champagne wine grape varieties in the future. Major groups in Bordeaux own parts of China in the mountain region that they think will be high quality regions soon, climatically. And so I think the issue is none of the solutions to climate change adaptation for growers are ideal in terms of economics. The questions are which ones are even an option for most growers. Smaller growers really can't think about buying land somewhere else and continually changing what they do in terms of the geography. So even though changing varieties could be a huge economic hit, it might be the difference between continuing to grow wine grapes or not. Can it still be called Champagne if it's uh, grown in England? (laughs) Doesn't it have to be from the Champagne region of France? It can't legally be called Champagne. (laughs) Uh, So Champagne usually contains three wine grape varieties for the most part. Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. So you could say you are growing champagne varieties in another place, but you legally cannot call it champagne unless it comes from champagne. And I understand that climate change can also actually affect the alcohol content of wine. Is that right? And how does that work? Yes, there is lots of evidence that alcohol content in wine has increased probably about a degree or more over the last several decades. So we used to drink wine that was maybe 13% alcohol, and it's possible nowadays to grab a bottle that's 15 or 15.5%. That's pretty high alcohol. With higher temperatures, growers are harvesting earlier. When you harvest earlier, you basically have to harvest at a higher sugar content. 
And that's just the functional way the berry works. Hotter temperatures, more sugar. That sugar goes into the juice and that juice becomes higher alcohol. It's a simple process. And the higher alcohol is actually to the level where lots of growers are looking into de-alcoholization processes. Wow. So these can be complicated things where you run the grape juice through a uh, machine to try to get some of the alcohol out. Or I've even heard of growers adding water or trying to do other manipulations to bring the alcohol content down. So it's definitely something that growers around the world are seeing and they're concerned about because they know at some point consumers don't want super high alcohol wine. It's harder to make a good high quality wine when it's that high in alcohol. And certainly changing varieties is a way to get the alcohol down and growers know that. So the higher alcohol content comes from keeping the variety you're growing in a certain region there and having to harvest it earlier because it's gotten hotter. But if you shift to a later ripening, more heat tolerant variety, it's going to ripen towards the end of the season and it'll have a more natural sugar level that's much more appropriate to what we think of for wine sugar levels. As a consumer of wine, what can you do about this? I mean, it seems like an overwhelming problem. So as a consumer of wine, I think you have sort of immediate things you can do about how you purchase wine and then the much bigger issue of how much warming are we contributing to as a globe. So at the very local scale, depending on where you live, if you know the winemaker or the growers in your area, you can talk to them about how much warming they've experienced and what they're considering. Growers are often afraid to talk about how much warming they know they have in their vineyard and how they're adapting to it already because terroir, this important term that describes the wine growing region, its soil, its climate, its slope, all these things really come back to climate. And so they know if they admit that their climate is changing, they're saying their terroir is changing and they're they're nervous to say that, but they're interested in what consumers are willing to taste and to try. So as a consumer, if you're buying blended wines more often or unusual varieties from a region, if you're more focused on flavor profiles you like over certain varieties, that's what growers want to hear. That's what allows them to make decisions about how they adapt and whether they change varieties. But I will say our research really shows that the biggest impact we can have on wine growing regions and wines we love is by limiting further warming. So adaptation potential works. It works at a 3.6 degree Fahrenheit warming event fairly well, saving half of the potential losses, but it doesn't work that well at a 7.2 degree Fahrenheit warming event. We end up losing well over half the current wine growing regions, even if growers make this huge adaptation choice to rapidly change varieties. And I should say at that 7.2 degree warming event, which is what we're more or less headed towards by the end of the century, growers have to keep changing. So they don't just change varieties once in our models. They change every 30 or so years to new varieties. So it's a constant cost burden for them. And it's unclear how many growers could really continue to do that over the long term. Elizabeth Wolkovich is a professor at the University of British Columbia in Forest and Conservation Sciences and lead author of this study. Thank you so much for taking this time with me. Thanks. Valentine's Day is coming right up, and for happy couples, it's a time to celebrate their love. But not everyone is happily paired up this year, and some might even be feeling burned by a recent breakup. Living Honors' Ainsley O'Neill has been looking into some options for those folks that might take the sting out of this romantic holiday. Hey there, Ainsley. Hi, Bobby, and happy early Valentine's Day. Oh, thanks. Same to you. So what have you been looking into here? Well, I have found a few places that will turn your ex into prey for wild animals. Uh, wow, this took a dark turn really quickly. (laughs) What are you talking about? Not literally, not literally. But take the Wildlife Images Rehabilitation and Education Center in Grants Pass, Oregon. If you have somebody in your life who's kind of slimy or maybe a bit of a bottom feeder, you can name a fish after them and then have that fish fed to one of the center's bears. A $20 donation gets you the standard package with a special certificate and live stream access so you can watch the carnage in all its glory. (laughs) You know, I can imagine that could be really satisfying. I don't know, it's so primal. Exactly. And some people will also write the name of a sports team that just keeps disappointing them. Or maybe the name of a politician who's not quite living up to their standards. And the El Paso Zoo has a similar event, only with cockroaches instead of fish. Hmm. Every creature is important, right? But we don't think too highly of cockroaches. Somehow it feels, I don't know, fitting to name one after a person you're still angry with. Yeah, I feel like seeing a meerkat or a hornbill chow down on a cockroach named after your ex-boyfriend has got to be pretty cathartic. 
And the El Paso Zoo then live streams the feedings for Valentine's Day and the next few days. So you can enjoy that catharsis for a while. All right. Well, what if you want to support something like this, but you don't have anybody you're angry with at Valentine's Day? Oh, then the Bronx Zoo is the thing for you. Their tagline is, roaches are forever. (laughs) Yeah, they are. (laughs) It's perhaps the most romantic way of thinking about an insect known for being a pest that just won't die. This time, your donation will name one of the zoo's Madagascar hissing cockroaches after your loved one. And you can get some roach-themed goodies as well, like socks or a candle that may or may not be roach-scented. Yeah, I don't think I want a roach-scented candle, but... uh... You know, Ainsley, I don't want to pry, but uh, do you have anybody in your life that you might want to name a fish or a roach after? Well, I shouldn't name names, but I can definitely think of a few people in my life who I wouldn't mind metaphorically feeding to a bear. (laughs) All right, Ainsley. Well, thanks for that report. Sure thing, Bobby. That's Living on Earth's Ainsley O'Neill. And for links about turning your ex into a cockroach or a fish, go to the Living on Earth website, loe.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Marilyn Hajiomari, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Anna Saldinger, Candace C. Wing G, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lairstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at loe.org, iTunes, and Google Play, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth. And find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bobby Bascom. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRX.